This is Tush. And I welcome you to Tushalicious Talk, an Oklahoma City podcast for titillating women, tantalizing conversation. And I thank you in advance for allowing me to be your one-stop shop advocacy connection. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Tushalicious Talk. This is my own personal podcast where I stream from the Oklahoma County League of Women Voters page as I discuss important community issues relevant to Oklahoma County because I am the co-president of that league and I believe that knowledge equals power. So absolutely everything is related to voting in some capacity. So for today's episode, um, it is titled Doulas and Disparities in Breastfeeding during National Minority Health Month. National Minority Health Month was founded by Booker T. Washington in 1915, and it was to bring awareness to health disparities caused by poor working and living conditions. So if you did not know that, April is National Minority Health Month. And my guests today are Farah Antoine. Is it Antoine? Yeah, Antoine. Antoine, I'm sorry, Mayberry, who is the executive director of For the Village, Inc. And Alexis Boritska. There you go. Hey, I got it correct. <laughs> a lactation consultant from COBA, which stands for Coalition of Oklahoma Breastfeeding Advocates. If you want to know more information about the uh, National Minority Health Month, uh, go to minorityhealth.hhs.gov forward slash NMHM. And we do have one other guest here. We have a baby. You wanted to be recognized. <laughs> and what is her name? Her name is Iman. Hey, Imani. She's four months old and she wants her voice heard. There we go. She deserves it. (laughs) So if you guys will tell us, um, and I guess since you're speaking, Imani uh, gave you an introduction. Let us know uh, who you are and what your nonprofit is and what you do. So I am, um, I actually graduated as an occupational therapist on the East Coast and moved to Oklahoma almost 19 years ago. And... um, uh, became started working in lactation after we have we have six kids. After our fifth child, um, I decided to go into business on my own and worked as a lactation counselor. Eventually became uh, a lactation consultant as well and worked as a doula and as a midwife's assistant. Uh, and uh, doing all of that, all of that is sort of related to birth work. Um, I was exposed to the disparities that exist uh, within the Black community, mm-hmm. that our Black moms are three to four times more likely um, to die because of pregnancy, birth, or postpartum-related causes, mm-hmm. and that our, our Black babies are uh, two to three times more frequently um, dying um, before their first birthday. And those disparities hit me hard. Uh, so I started For the Village, which is a nonprofit where we used Um, evidence-based research to be very proactive about these statistics. Mm -hmm. We we train Black women to become trained and certified as doulas, lactation um, professionals, and childbirth educators. Mm -hmm. And then we partner uh, these birth workers in the Black community with Black birthing persons, um, all of all of that again to respond to the statistics. Wow. Uh, so that's what we do. That is amazing. I did. I had no idea that you existed. I knew that the disparities existed, but I did not know that someone was proactively combating yeah, it. Yeah, we're only three years old, so we're still working on visibility. So what is a doula? Yeah. 
So a doula is a person, usually a woman, but there are male doulas as well. So a doula is a person that helps to provide educational, physical, uh, and emotional support to somebody who is in labor. Um, she Her job usually starts before um, labor. So she provides lots of education to a birthing person and their partner and whoever is going to be involved in that birth um, prenatally. And then is there during labor to give comfort, to give education, basically helping that couple to be a really great advocate for themselves. Um, they work with doulas, work with families um, at having home births, but also having hospital births. And most of the births happening in America are, are hospital births. So we do a lot of really, um, we do a lot of great work. Obviously, I'm biased. The research also, also shows that if you have a doula, you are less likely to have um, multiple interventions in the hospital system, uh, including a surgical intervention like a C-section. During the pregnancy? Um, if you have a doula during your pregnancy and during your birth, simply because if you think about it, especially here in America, most of us don't have childbirth education classes, right? I, I tell my, my whoever's willing to listen to me, uh, most of us learning about childbirth in Hollywood, right? And according to Hollywood, you're pregnant and you're perfectly fine. And then your water breaks and then you're hysterical and your partner is made to look useless. And then you have a baby in a cab and we don't, we don't typically have childbirth education classes that teach you about what's normal and all of that. So as a result, if you're not ed educated in that sense and you're just showing up in your birth space at the hospital in labor, you are more you're more vulnerable in that state and you're more likely to get snowballed into like, OK, we're going to give you this. We're going to give you that and not prepared to uh, to to know to even have a good feeling for like what your body was designed to do. Uh, so a doula, sometimes people mistake a doula for a midwife. So sometimes people think, oh, a doula is there like to catch babies. And she's not. A doula is not a health professional. She's not taking vitals or anything like that. She's really providing a lot of um like I said, educational support. Um, physically, her presence is there to give physical comfort. So like massaging and positioning. And because she's well-educated about how childbirth works, mm -hmm. she can help that birthing person during different stages of labor uh, to figure out what's going to work best for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Extremely interesting. Yeah, I did an episode, um, which I believe I told you guys uh, where I learned well, not where I learned. I already knew this as well, but pregnancy is extremely deadly. I have four daughters and I tell them all the time, especially for black women, pregnancy is it can be extremely deadly. It can kill you. So don't take it lightly. Don't the, the thing where we have um, multiple baby daddies and baby mamas and not like don't have a kid for just anyone because you're literally risking your life. You need to do it for somebody that you love. So. Yeah, so that's the one side of pregnancy. <laughs> On the other side, once the baby is born, we have um, postpartum depression. And so I'm wanting for uh, Alexis to kind of talk to us about that um, and breastfeeding because you are from COBA. So tell us what COBA is and tell us what your position is, please. Yes, so COBA is the Coalition of Oklahoma Breastfeeding Advocates. We were created in 2000. And our mission is to protect, promote, and support breastfeeding across Oklahoma. Um, we do this through a variety of ways. We have um, worked with lawmakers. We have partner agencies such as the Oklahoma Department of Health and um, 
<clears throat> we we just really want to make sure that everyone in our state has the appropriate access to care um, and, you know, can achieve their births or their, <laughs> their breastfeeding goals, no matter what they may be. Um, our in the last couple of years since I've been with COBA, we've really worked on some key things such as um, early child care and making sure that our child care providers are educated in supporting a breastfeeding family that may be under their care. You know, warming up breast milk and storing breast milk is very different than preparing formula. Um, incarcerated mothers and their ability to provide milk for their babies is a really hot topic right now. And we're working very closely with our um, Department of Justice here in Oklahoma mm -hmm. to get that started in our systems. And then also workplace support. <clears throat> you know, the, the United States has zero paid maternity leave that is guaranteed to our birthing mothers. Oh, wow. Zero. <laughs> Um, so workplace support is huge. Mm -hmm. our, our moms need adequate pumping space and break times to be able to provide nutrition for their babies. Yeah, I agree. So, OK, you said that um, the storage for breast milk and for um, powdered milk or whatever mm -hmm. the other type of milk is called, what is it called? Formula right. um, are two different things. What's the difference? Right. So breast milk, typically once it's pumped, we do need it, um, you know, refrigerated and used within a certain amount of time. Um, we we cannot, uh, it's bacteria grows, right? Bacteria can grow within it. Um, similar to like it can in formula bottles, mm -hmm. but preparation may just be a little bit different. Um, you can store breast milk in the fridge for quite a while, actually, for, you know, the Current standards, the so guidelines. In the fridge, um, like not in the door, but like the center of the fridge or the back um, for about five days. Um, and then uh, room temperature for about five hours uh, in a freezer that's connected to a fridge uh, for about five months. Um, and then if you're using a deep freezer, you can you can uh, freeze it for up to a year. OK, OK, cool. That's good to know. I did not actually breastfeed at all. Um, I feel like I was kind of forced to feel like um, it was sexualized to an extent. And like, I should be ashamed if I wanted to breastfeed or something like that. And so, and there was really no encouragement. It was just like, are you going to breastfeed? Oh, okay, thanks. Bye. You know, so yeah. Um, what, is there a link between postpartum depression and breastfeeding though? There is. So we know that moms who breastfeed are less likely to experience postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of factors. So we know that moms that are breastfeeding and go on to succeed long term with their breastfeeding. So for at least, you know, six months to a year, they typically have a better support system at home, whether it be with their partners or their families um, their workplaces are usually more supportive. And then, you know, they also probably have physicians and care providers that mm -hmm. are also very supportive mm -hmm. of their needs. So in general, that sense of community and support for that parent mm -hmm. is going to leads to it's going to reduce their risk of mm -hmm. um, postpartum depression. So that makes me think about how you said that um, there we're trying in Oklahoma or your trying COBA is trying mm -hmm. to um, invent some type of system between the incarcerated mothers in, in Oklahoma, we have, are we still number one in women's incarceration? If we're not number one, we're number two. I can't say for sure, but I know our numbers are. Yeah, it's either number one or number not, two. I guarantee yeah. you that. But so, yeah, what what does that process look like? And is 
um, if you are already involved in that process, what does postpartum look like for incarcerated mothers? So right now we are in our very early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, our Department of Justice has had a lot of turnover in recent <laughs> in recent events, um, and you know throughout. Uh, COVID especially really slowed down mm-hmm. our, our efforts here. Um, we're very excited to really get going um, and spring forward here in the next year, though. Um, so what it could look like, there is a program in Nebraska that we're really, um, you know, collaborating with to figure out how they're doing this and bring those efforts down here. So it could just simply look like a breast pump is provided to a newly postpartum mother. And then that milk is then either um, given to the milk bank and then picked up and distributed through there. Mm-hmm. Um, since the milk bank is a regulated space that has to follow a certain protocol mm-hmm. or it is picked up by family from uh, the facility where that mother may be. So they won't actually get to see the child more than likely. I, that is not the program that we're trying to establish. I I would Are love to see that really though. Yeah, maybe this is a first step though, right? I, I think it yeah. could be. We're definitely. all for steps. Yeah. So that's good to know. Um, I mean, I'm I'm grateful that someone has implemented the idea. Um, so. Uh, when I was reading, um, so there's this the article. It came from AmericasHealthRankings.org, and I will put all of this in the uh, in the chat, so anyone can have uh, advent or you will have access to it. Um, it says Black families at all income levels are more likely to live in areas of high concentrated disadvantage compared with White and Hispanic families. So that leads me to the question, what is a concentrated disadvantage? Because I have never heard this term. And why is it important for people to know what this is? So actually, Farrah and I were talking in the hallway before we came in here and neither of us had heard of concentrated disadvantage before. We were like, I I had to deep dive into it some last night and I was really surprised by what I found. So some of the risks of living in a concentrated disadvantaged area uh-huh. are actually preterm, preterm birth, teen pregnancy, and lack of access to nutrition, which then directly correlate to poor breastfeeding rates and poor maternal health outcomes, right? Yeah. Um, and I also found out that 30% of Oklahomans are in such an area. Yeah. And that was really surprising to me. <laughs> I think although we hadn't heard of that specific term, concentrated disadvantage, I think the information, like we were aware of it. You know, it's like it was a way to describe something that we already know exists, right? So from what I read, concentrated disadvantage refers to the reality that exists, that if you live in communities that um, that it has... Um, high criminal activity that where there's violence where there is there are food deserts mm-hmm. uh, where uh, the article that you shared spoke about verbal ability how all of those things are predictors for um, success later on in life uh, and so so how does that yeah how, how does that correlate to things like breastfeeding how does that correlate to things like infant mortality and uh, maternal mortality what kind of access to the things that an individual needs to be successful during their pregnancy and during their postpartum period. Uh, so it's it's kind of like, again, it sums up a lot of like when you learn what it is, you're like, oh, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's a term to describe when you're living 
in a circumstance that's just not really set up for you to succeed, uh, then, well, breastfeeding ends up being one of the things that uh, can be impacted. Right. Yeah. It kind of went hand in hand with A scores, in my opinion, the adverse childhood experiences. And maybe it's saying that in a certain zip code or in a certain neighborhood, there's uh, more, what's the word, proclivity to um, have A scores or multiple A scores versus other neighborhoods. And if you're Black, uh, and unfortunately it said at all income levels, that's kind of the part that shocked me at all income levels, then you are more likely to, to be I'm subjugated to that disadvantage, that concentrated disadvantage. Yeah. Um, So what I was also reading um, on the CDC website, um, vital statistics, this is from 2019. It says overall, the breastfeeding rate is 84% nationally and Oklahoma is 82%. For Hispanics, nationally, 88%. In Oklahoma, 82%. For whites, 86% nationally. In Oklahoma, 85%. Black, 74%. Oklahoma, 72%. Asians, 90%. In Oklahoma, 86%. American and Alaskan Native, 77%. And then in Oklahoma, 75%. So every single percentage was below the national average. It didn't matter if you were Black or not. Of course, there's a horrible disparity there for Blacks and also for Natives. But every single category, I mean, our health care is not looking so good here. It's, it's sad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and it really speaks to the overall health of our state mm-hmm. because it's, you know, what we expose our children to and what we can give our infants or um, really impacts them long-term throughout their lives. When we get into the benefits of breastfeeding, we know that they have a, you know, a decreased risk of type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. um, or type 2 diabetes and, um, you know, a reduced risk of breast cancer later in life for the mother. So we're, we're really setting our whole state up for failure here. And, and we have to figure out why. What, what is Oklahoma doing wrong or what are we not right. doing? Right. Do you have any answers? <laughs> I wish I did. No. So, I, I think we do have some answers, though. I, I do. Um, <clears throat> we'll get into that later. So I, I will say also acknowledge that these numbers are improved um, in the last like five or six years that I've been um, in breastfeeding work. Um, these numbers are way better than they were before. So yeah. so th- things are happening. Um, in terms of solutions, really, I feel like it's important to start at the beginning, meaning I think it's really important to normalize things like breastfeeding. The experience that you shared about breastfeeding, feeling like uh, those around you maybe made it feel like it was a sexual type of activity. That makes sense because do we talk about breastfeeding? Do we learn about it in school? When we learn about breasts, again, Hollywood tells us how you're supposed to look at that. So I feel like if you normalize it, it's not as big a deal because we don't normalize it. People, you typically don't think about themselves breastfeeding until they're pregnant. Some of them until they've pushed their babies out and they feel like, well, 
it's natural, so I'll try it. When you live in an environment where it's not natural to talk about how to breastfeed, even though breastfeeding is natural, then it's hard. Then you it, then and then because breastfeeding is not just a physical activity. When you have a baby, you very much are one unit. You and your baby are are one unit in a lot of ways. So. So most women, I believe, have a desire to breastfeed um, because it's kind of like the next thing. Even if you choose not to breastfeed, you're going to have uh, milk in your breast. Yeah. So when you can't, um, then it can lead to that postpartum depression. I'm going to hand you this baby. Absolutely. If that's okay I love the baby. In our community. <laughs> um, then it can lead to postpartum depression because that instinctive, intrinsic desire um, and those goals just aren't met. Look, guys, I was going to be so proud bringing this baby who's going to be so calm. I am not. But but I will also tell you this, too, because it's like, why would you bring a baby to a podcast? Um, I, I, I very much feel like so much needs to be normalized in order for moms to feel well supported in their communities. And I believe in creating spaces where... You can bring your children, obviously not everywhere, but I, I'm, I'm kind of in this season of like, well, we want to live in community. We want to raise our children in community. We want them to know how to interact within community. Uh, we need for them to be a part of those communities. We need for them to not just be like, well, go and stay in the house and just come out when you're this well-behaved individual because how do they learn how to function? And then how much more stress does that add to the to the mom who feels like she needs to be either in one place or the other, especially in, in a in a in a country, again, postpartum wise, when you were talking about um, when you were talking about um, maternity, maternity leave and paid maternity leave, um, the recommendation for breastfeeding, right, by the CDC, American Academy of Pediatrics um, and multiple entities is that a baby should receive only breast milk for breastfeed for nutrition for the first six months and that they should continue to receive breast milk even when solids are introduced. Uh, until they're at least two years, right? So that's the recommendation. Oh, wow. I did not know that. And most people don't. But then when you compare it to FMLA, if you're lucky, right? If you're lucky, we're talking maybe 12 weeks. So then that's automatically saying that, okay, so for 12 weeks, I'm going to be home with my baby, nurse them, and then it's time for me to be a productive citizen. So I'm going to work and be productive exactly the way I was before. And I'm also going to take times in my day to remove milk from my body. Like it's almost like if FMLA and, and these entities can get together, maybe paid maternity leave should be six months. I don't know. But it's just, it's hard. It's hard to be. And, and when we're talking about within the Black community, we also have women who are more susceptible in some of these disadvantaged communities um, who are more uh, at risk for having to go back to work within the first four to six weeks after they've given birth. Um, so it's a lot. It's a lot of overlap. It's a lot of, um, it's a huge uphill battle. And, and I'll kind of circle back to, I think if we start having these conversations and normalizing them when our children are young, yeah. when our children are coloring pages of people breastfeeding like it's no big deal, then it becomes easier to not just think about breastfeeding after you've given birth and gone through all of that mm -hmm. for the first time. Yeah. I, I feel like that perfectly aligns with a paragraph that I had saved here. And it's from the online library. Again, I'll put it in the uh, comments. But um, it says that although wide disparities exist, 
and engaging in breastfeeding research has shown that intentional intentionality to breastfeed does not vary significantly by race or ethnicity. And a study of 2,070 women and children enrolled in the WIC program across 27 states, researchers found that 87% of non-Hispanic Black mothers had general breastfeeding intentions compared to 86% of non-Hispanic white mothers. These similarities in the rate of intent, but disparities in the rate of engagement suggest that there are barriers unique to Black mothers that are affecting their ability to meet their breastfeeding intentions. One significant barrier is employment. Black women are overrepresented in the service sector industry where labor protections are weaker. Thus, they have less access to adequate maternity leave or lactation breaks during the workday. Black women are more likely to experience structural racism and systemic discrimination, contributing to higher levels of stress and post-traumatic stress disorder, which can lead to lower breastfeeding rates. And what I want to point out here is that when I was looking articles up, I did not specifically look for Black disparities. When you start searching about breastfeeding, these statistics, these statistics are going to pop at you, the disparities in Black breastfeeding. You don't have to look for them. And so, like, what I don't want is for somebody to say, oh, she's only focusing on the Black women. No, like, Google it for yourself. It's going to pop up at you. And so, yeah, that goes in line with what you were saying about the employment. And if it's not only Black women, it's all women. We don't have any type of saved by the government. I, I think no we could grace. do a whole another podcast episode on parental leave and, and paid, you know, postpartum uh, care for mothers in our country. Um, but I, I think the fact that across all demographics, the wanting to start mm-hmm. breastfeeding mm-hmm. is generally the same. So what's happening to our mothers mm-hmm. in certain areas mm-hmm. that that it they just aren't doing the you know the same as their counterparts and i think one thing that coba recognizes and we're really trying to work on is representation um we need black lactation consultants that can help black mothers and their partners as well um you know me as a white woman trying to help a black breastfeeding mother redness swelling bruising those things look very different on her skin than they would my own that i have personal experience with so we and there's also some cultural things that they may not feel comfortable discussing with me mm-hmm. that they would feel much more comfortable with um you know had they <clears throat> had a black lactation consultant available mm-hmm. um so or even a black doctor for that matter um absolutely. yeah the the two disparities that i focused on was racism and uh colonization because these were the two that were most shocking to me that i had absolutely no idea existed until i started reading stuff too and it blew my mind i shared this one about racism with my daughters as well just because i wanted them to know but it says that healthcare providers Biased assumption that African-American women would not breastfeed affected the quality of breastfeeding support provided to them. Specifically, African-American women received fewer referrals for lactation support and more limited assistance when problems developed. This scoping review provides evidence 
that African-American women experience racism, bias, and discrimination affecting breastfeeding care, support, and outcomes. And the crazy thing about that article is that it was peer-reviewed and absolutely no one challenged it. Everyone accepted it for fact. And that blew my mind. So I will say that... um, when we're talking about even infant mortality um, rates in the Black community and maternal mortality rates, we can list different etiologies or causes like hypertension and prematurity. Um, that's what led to these fatal outcomes. But we know that racism is at the root of them. And we know that a lot of it, you know, it's, it's almost it's easier to deal with somebody who's just blatantly racist than it is to deal with somebody whose biases are based on racism and they may not even realize how much of their behavior, right, is a reflection of that. So when you have a nurse, for example, who looks at her Black patient who's just given birth and who thinks, well, she's probably going to be on food stamps. So she's probably going to accept the free formula when, and she's probably not going to breastfeed. When you think that about somebody, it's going to impact the quality of investment. And she might not think that because she, she feels poorly about Black people, it just might be a bias. And your bias, and we all have them. I have biases, right? But these biases we're talking about, they can cost lives. And we know that breastfeeding is an intervention that helps to reduce infant mortality rates. So that is also one of the steps that need to happen. Besides, you know, my huge, like, we need to start when they're little, is we need to acknowledge biases. And that's not an easy thing for everyone. Not everybody's ready to hear these things that I'm even saying. Um, but these biases, yeah, they they lead to exactly the way it's written there uh, in the article that you shared that um, it, 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 it affects the investment. I've had Uh, When I have Black doula clients, I'm very straightforward with them. When I leave the hospital or even before we get to the hospital, I tell them, so you're a Black person. You are more likely to be offered formula. You need to make sure you already have in your birth plan what your desire is. And I've seen that. I've had um, um, a midwife that I work with. She's white. And uh, we had a client who had to transfer and have a hospital birth. And the client, um, after giving birth within the first 24 hours, she texted us saying, hey, for whatever reason, she was having difficulty transferring milk. So they wanted the baby to supplement. And um, she was talking about like she really wanted to use donor milk. So milk that's kind of transferred from the milk bank to the hospital. And they were giving her a really hard time. And they were talking to them, uh, to her about costs and how much it's going to cost because there's a charge. And the midwife and I, we had like never heard of this. I'm like, you're in the hospital. You're still an inpatient. And to see the hoops that she had to go through, um, that was something that I've never experienced with a client that doesn't look uh, like me. Uh, So those are things you really have to know your rights. You have to know your rights. You have to know what's what's due to you, for lack of better terms. And they see us differently. They do. I've had another client who went in pregnant, went into the hospital for abdominal pains. Um, It turns out she had a urinary tract infection. Um, But something about what they tested her for got her attention. So she took a picture of it, sent the screenshot to her midwife uh, and and to me. And she was like, is this normal? They tested me for for meth and cocaine and just this list of things. 
he had a UTI. And this is serious because we know that Black individuals, there's an over-surveillance, right? Where if two people are going into the hospital with the same symptoms, because of the biases, if your baby is born premature and you're a Black person, well, maybe you're on drugs. So we're going to drug test your baby. So, so these disparities, they matter and they are worth attention because we know that uh, in a state like Oklahoma, we are over 70% white and less than 15% black. So for our babies to be dying two to three times more frequently, for our women to be dying three to four times more, mm-hmm. that's not okay, right? So so I know, lots of heavy news. I'm a little bit passionate about it. I know, just a little bit. I know it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not un at you. I'm just like, ooh. <laughs> well, and for our nonprofit, so we know that research does show us that when your provider looks like you, for these babies, when their pediatricians are Black pediatricians, the, the, the rates go down of infant mortality. Um, that's one of the reasons why for our nonprofit, we choose to train Black women so that they can be doulas and childbirth educators and lactation professionals for um, for Black families because we know that there does exist um, a connection there um, and a sort of a safety net there that that's hard to get when it's somebody from a different race. Not to say that, I mean, you could totally have an excellent doula that doesn't look like you, but we do what we do based on that research and knowing that we don't have as many Black doulas. We don't have as many Black lactation professionals either. <laughs> Teachers, so. doctors, lawyers, you name it. Yeah. Yeah. When you had said that, um, uh, the thing about formula, and I'm not going to go into detail on this, but um, I had ran across this NPR article um, and it's titled From Breastfeeding to Beyonce Skimmed Tells a Story About Black Motherhood. And that, and, and I tried to cheat and look it up on the Roku and see if it was on there. It's not actually a, doc, a video documentary. It's only a book, so I couldn't actually read it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a whole book. Um about um, companies selling baby formula um, and pushing it, pushing that agenda on black mothers um, way back from from enslaved. It, it, well, the story is from enslavement to the present, but it specifically focuses on uh, some quadruplets. I want to say back in like the 40s or so, mm-hmm. and they were heavily preyed upon. Um, anyways, I'm not going to go into that or else we're going to get out of time. But you guys read that article, find that book. Um, it, it's, yeah, kind of mind blowing within itself that there really was a conspiracy to um, pull black mothers away from breastfeeding, um, as horrible as that sounds. Um But yeah, so uh, as for the Native population... And I only found this article or looked at this article the day before yesterday, or I would have invited this woman here totally. Um, A lady named Jasha, I hope I'm saying it correctly, Jasha Lyons Echo Hawk. Do either of you know her? I do. Yes, I do know her. She's wonderful. I believe it's Jasha. Jasha. Okay. So this comes from, is it illusa.org? Is that the name of the website? Uh, La Leche League USA. So LLL. Okay. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) So um, Native Breastfeeding Week is the second Sunday in August, or it starts the second Sunday in August. And it was founded by Jasha. Yes. 
Jaisha, uh -huh, Lions Echo Hawk. She is a doula and she is a lactivist and she is from Oklahoma. Um, she says that native breastfeeding beyond infancy was shamed as a means to reduce native resilience of culture and body sovereignty and traditional parenting. And then she says that, quote, lactation is my superpower, but it also seems to be treated like a privilege and not a sovereign a sovereign right, regardless of whether you're indigenous or not. Colonization and patriarchy have starved most of us physically, spiritually, and culturally. It started by starving off my ancestors so chest slash breastfeeding relatives couldn't provide the first food. And that just saddened me. Oh, end quote. <laughs> and that saddened me when I read it, but it just seems so real. I really do wish I could have invited her here today. So what do you know more about Native um, Breastfeeding Week? Yeah, so I believe they actually recently changed the name to Indigenous Peoples Breastfeed or Milk Medicine, Indigenous Milk Medicine Week. Okay. Um, since that article was published. Yeah, That's this their, article is like from 2017. Right. I think. Yeah, yeah. So that was their inaugural year. And now it is Indigenous Milk Medicine Week, which I love that name so much more. And um, throughout the week, they have a Facebook page that you can follow. It is in August. And they host an event each day. So you can um, speak with um, lactation providers that are in the Native community um, all over the country. They do a really beautiful morning sunrise ceremony um, where they sing as the sunrise comes up and um, lots of women empowerment, lots of bringing awareness to medical disparities in the Native community as well. That's so awesome. Yeah, so if you are interested in that, Go to LLLUSA.org and reach out to her if you are interested in, in, what is it called now? Indigenous Milk Medicine Week. Indigenous Milk Medicine Week. I do love that term. <laughs> so as far as um, solutions, um, grassroots solutions here in this room, um, what are some of the solutions that you provide? And if you'll restate your website yeah. again. So um, so our organization is called For the Village and the website is um, www.forthevillageinc.org. Uh, or inc .org. And we essentially, um, again, we train Black women and we train and certify them as doulas, childbirth educators and lactation professionals. And then we have them serve the Black community. Uh, we also offer some lactation training as well for individuals, and that's really open to the public. Um, and we just look to collaborate with different com community organizations because we're talking about birth and birth affects all of us, uh, not just women, not just men, but we really need to, to develop a, a village mentality. Uh, I'm sitting here with my baby who got fussy and I handed her over to Alexis over here. Like that's kind of a village move to me, uh, instead of being made to feel like keep, keep noisy children behind the doors. Cause we do live in a work-driven country where you're supposed to just always show up acting like you're not living life like a normal human. Um, so, so yeah, so that is, that's our grassroots um, move. Um, and we, 
as a nonprofit, we pay for everything. We we pay for our birth workers to be trained. They don't come out of pocket for that. To become a doula? To become a doula. It's a really excellent opportunity. And then we also compensate them for the work that they do within the Black community. Um, so it's a really excellent. I also have like, you know, high standards for who I'm looking for uh, to be part of the nonprofit because I want them to recognize why we're here. These statistics, we look for individuals who are passionate, who want to do something. They don't have to have past experience. Um, and so that's what we do. That's what we do. So if you want to be a doula, you just got to hook up. <laughs> and what about at COBA? So at COBA, we're always working on legislation um, to help improve, you know, uh, possibilities for families here in Oklahoma and really continue to support breastfeeding in Oklahoma. We recently partnered with uh, Carrie Hicks and the Oklahoma Education Association to make sure our teachers are actually getting their uh, right. pump breaks right. awarded to them. There, there was a gap before, you know, we trust them every day with our own children, yet they were not able to provide for their own babies. So so we're always doing things like that. Um, COBA also has a scholarship program where we are going to award up to $840 in education funds for anyone trying to become a lactation professional that may want, that is going to serve um, a community. Um, and then we also provide an exam scholarship that covers your IBCLC exam, which is your board certified lactation consultant. And that's a hefty exam fee. It's, so, and you can actually qualify for both of those scholarships. Uh -huh. So you can apply for your education scholarship. And when you've completed your education, um, then you can come back and we can give you the funds. Okay, to do your free exam. game, free yes. game. So uh, the lactation, uh, what, what did you say? So it's a board certified lactation consultant. Okay, so this person, they just go around to different people's houses and help them breastfeed? Basically? They can, they uh -huh. can. So um, there's IBCLCs in many different capacities. Uh -huh. um, they can work in hospitals, they can be private practice, or they may work somewhere like the health department. Um, and the, we consider the IBCLC kind of like the gold standard mm -hmm. um, of our lactation professionals, even though there are many different types of lactation professionals. Wow. Wow. I have learned a lot. <laughs> I hope everyone here is too. But we are out of time. Um, is there any other last minute comments before we tell everyone bye? I just thank you. Thank you for any opportunity that we have to to talk about this stuff. Uh, it's not stuff, it just, it affects everybody somehow. Even if you're not somebody who's given birth, you've heard about something. Uh, and and I think raising awareness is a really important step and, and you know, trying to change things and make them better. Yeah, I think most men want their child breastfed, mm -hmm. but they don't know how to deal with the stigmas either. So, yeah. So on that note, reach out to For the Village and reach out to Koba. Have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> Tushalicious Talk is part of the Breaking Ice, Building Bridges community podcast platform brought to you by Possibilities, Inc.